Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods. To the place where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. In this second series of the podcast, we're travelling around the country, sometimes around the world, to talk to people who are already making it happen. To people who stand and work and live at the interface between science and spirituality, politics and philosophy, art and creativity, and everything that we need to bring together to create the kind of personal, local, community, national and international resilience that we're going to need as we move forward into the 21st century. And my guest this week is someone who stands at all of those intersections. Rupert Reid is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia. He's a thinker, an author, a blogger, and a climate and environmental campaigner. He's the author of a little book called This Civilization is Finished, which is an absolute must-read if you're interested in this area at all. I will put a link in the show notes. He's also a key member of XR, Extinction Rebellion, part of their political group, and he's spoken to people from the Shadow Chancellor to the Environment Secretary and is heading upwards in our current political lineage to talk to these people about where we need to go and how we need to get there. But more than all of this, Rupert is one of the people who stands for me very solidly in the second of Joanna Macy's Three Pillars of the Great Turning that we talked about last week with Della Duncan. If you remember, the first is holding actions, the second is systemic change, and the third is shifting consciousness, which is where we are most focused with accidental gods. But we need the other two to keep everything else going. And Rupert is one of the key thinkers of systems change, of how we can change the current system, how we need to change it, where it might go, and all of the complex things that arise from that. So here we go, an interview in his home with Rupert Reid of the University of East Anglia. So, Rupert, we're here in your home in Norwich. Thank you very much indeed. And I want to first to come to your book. So This Civilization is Finished is a pretty solid title. And it's written, it's quite short, it's 86 pages and, and quite a lot of endnotes. And it's a conversation between you and another philosopher. Can you tell us a little bit about how it arose and what the core message is? So a few years ago, I was um, delivering leaflets for the Green Party, as it happens. And this phrase just whammed into my head. And the phrase was, this civilization is finished. And it just wouldn't go away. And it was kind of there for days. And so after a few days, I did what people like me do, which is I started, when you've got a kind of bug that you can't fix, I started trying to write about it. And I wrote a piece, and this piece was unlike anything I'd ever written before because I really didn't want anyone to read it. Uh, So I started very kind of gingerly sharing it with some trusted friends and colleagues and say, hello, what do you think of this? Mostly philosophers? All sorts of people, actually. Philosophers and political actors and assorted intellectuals. I asked them what they thought and and I said, and don't forward it. and they said, basically, they said, Rupert, this is, this is brilliant. This is really important. You need to find a way of sharing this. 
Uh, and eventually one of them persuaded me to publish a version of it uh, anonymously. Uh, and after I'd done that and, again, hadn't got the pushback that I feared, the pushback being people saying, oh, you're a defeatist, you're a sellout, this is terrible, you're going to demoralise everybody. I then very kind of gingerly gave my first talk on it. I was very, very nervous. But again, no pushback. Basically, almost every time I've given this kind of talk since, what's happened is basically most people have said things like, oh, my God, this is so refreshing. This is so liberating. Thank God someone's finally really telling it uh, how it is. And so I decided to write a, a book about it. And uh, I'd been in touch with uh, Sam, who's an expert in degrowth for, for years. And I proposed to him that, uh, that he work with me editorially on making the book possible. So the book is a kind of dialogue between us. He sort of asks questions and I answer them, but it's far from being a sort of, he's far from a kind of yes, Socrates, no mm. Socrates mm. figure. It's quite a, a serious dialogue, I hope. Yes. And yeah, the basic idea of the book is uh, we are on course to collapse our civilization. If we do collapse it, then that might be completely terminal or we may be able to create a new civilization out of the wreckage. Um, there is still some very, very slim possibility that we might be able to avoid this kind of uh, collapse. But if we do, the transformation that will be required will be so deep and wide and rapid that in no meaningful sense will the civilization that comes out the other side be the same one as we inhabit. So any which way you look at it, my claim is this civilization is finished. It will either die exterminating everything or it will die and give birth to something else uh, or we will um, transform it uh, rapidly and uh, it'll still no longer be the same civilization as we're inhabiting right now. And in the book, you talk about this being a white swan event rather than a black swan event. Can you enlarge a little bit on that? Yeah, so black swans are events which are kind of unexpected and, and catastrophic. And the point I make about climate and ecological breakdown in the book is that that's not how it is with the crisis that that we are in. The warnings are extremely stark and direct. The writing is on the wall. The doomsday clock has just been moved to 100 seconds to, to midnight. So we cannot say we haven't been warned and for a long, long time. Climate breakdown, ecological breakdown, which are the most likely drivers of uh, societal breakdown, that breakdown could take various forms that we might discuss, is a white swan. It, it is absolutely what we should now expect. In order to prevent it, in order to achieve the third of my three possibilities, in order to transform this civilization without having to undergo a collapse. We're going to have to do something completely extraordinary and unprecedented. Um, we can't bet on succeeding in doing that. We should try to do it, but we can't bet on succeeding. So we also now have a profound responsibility to start taking seriously the process of what my friend and colleague Jem Bendel calls deep adaptation. We have to start putting ourselves in a position of readiness for potential um, societal collapse because it's just way too late to bet everything and all our hopes and all our resources and so on on being able to affect this uh, civilizational transformation. Yeah, let's try to achieve it, but let's also prepare ourselves for the fall. Do you have any idea? So 
put it into context, I was listening to an interview with the head of the Conservative Environment Network, who was lauding the fact that they had listened to all of the science, and they had got a 2050 date for carbon zero, and they felt that this was possibly achievable, provided nobody got in their way or suggested that it wasn't the most useful thing to be doing. And they think that they have listened to all of the science. And either these people are entirely mendacious, or they're decent human beings trying their best. I am endeavouring to believe the latter while suspecting the former. And yet, it seems to me, I've read the Deep Adaptation paper, I've read your book, that the science is incontrovertible and 2050 is a fantasy. How is, how is it that even now there is such a wide disparity between what we believe to be a white swan and the world that they live in? Yeah. So, look, to be fair to people like this guy who you've just mentioned, I think that nearly all of us are at some level in denial. I think that very, very few of us are, uh, and, you know, even not myself, are in the position of being kind of fully able to face all the time the awfulness of climate reality, of the uh, of the ongoing um, sixth mass extinction of the the likelihood of, of what's going to happen in this century, even if we do incredible, wonderful things of, of how bad most stuff is going to get. Uh, it, mostly now it's about damage limitation rather than achieving some kind of wonderful uh, sunny uplands. So um, the, the, the 2050 fantasy, and you're quite right in your characterization of it, is just the sort of most powerful um, elite response to that situation of almost ubiquitous uh, denial. But yeah, that shouldn't stop us from um, explaining very clearly uh, how it is a fantasy. So one place to start with this is with the IPCC 1.5 degree report from about 16 months ago uh, now. And it's very clear if you read uh, that report that we need to have extremely rapid reductions in carbon emissions in across the world, but especially in the countries which are the are the countries with the heaviest pr footprints and the heaviest uh, historical responsibility. Countries like our own, massive uh, footprint per capita, enormous historical responsibility. We need to have extremely rapid reductions if we're going to be anything like uh, safe. Uh, basically, if you're going to have um, precaution and equity, which are the principles which are supposed to underlie uh, these kind of processes of international negotiations, well, then as um, Tim Jackson, for example, the great uh, ecological economist, has recently argued in a paper called Zero Carbon Sooner, um, you're going to have to have a date way before 2050. In fact, Tim Jackson argues that um, according to precaution and equity, and in many ways his analysis is still quite conservative, uh, the target date for zero carbon should be, surprise, surprise, 2025. The exact, the very date that Extinction Rebellion um, has been pushing from Has, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And let's remember, and that of course is more ambitious than what the IPCC say, but let's remember that the IPCC is in a number of ways very conservative, even in their absolutely drastic 1.5 degree report. The IPC report, IPCC reports are always a few years out of date. They have to nail absolutely everything down in terms of evidence. They can't move ahead of the evidence to actually take care of society in the way that we ought to if we're operating um, according to the precautionary principle. And 
notoriously, a number of the, the mainstream climate scientists' uh, predictions of, as to what was going to happen with our climate, we've already exceeded worst case, so-called worst case scenarios, for example, around um, uh, Arctic melting. Uh, and in uh, my opinion, and, and I've, I would argue this in detail, um, the IPCC reports do not have a way of framing the uh, the vicious feedbacks that we're facing that makes it sufficiently clear to readers of those uh, reports um, what the uh, the nature of those feedbacks is potentially going to be, what we're exposed to, um, the kinds of risks that, again, if we were being precautious, we would be protecting ourselves against. And finally, of course, that's not even to mention the fact that the IPCC um, summaries for policymakers, which are the things that most people actually read rather than the full reports are edited by um, policymakers and civil servants they're not you know that they're they're drafted by scientists but it's governments that get to edit them and I can absolutely promise you that the governments do not edit them to lean on the side of precaution and equity and so on uh, and and warnings of how bad things could get they they always edit them in the opposite uh, direction so the IPCC reports are are way ahead of where the British government wants to be they're way ahead of of uh, of um, the the 2050 target especially in the way that this government is is um, saying they're going to pursue it. Um, and the IPCC is actually really conservative and, and you need to be looking in, instead at least to something like Tim Jackson's approach. So we need to be talking about 2025 or something like that. Now, you might, that might just sound like a difference of date. 2050, 2025, you know, okay, you know, well, we could be more ambitious, we could be less ambitious. But actually, it's a complete qualitative difference. Because if you think that what you're trying to do is create a, a zero carbon or net zero carbon um, economy by 2050, and of course, the net is, there's a lot of awful lot of dangerous devil in the detail there, um, that's in that net, they have the um, the fantasy of uh, all sorts of weird and wonderful technologies that haven't been invented yet that will enable us to continue to emit climate deadly carbon after 2050. Um, whereas if you go for 2025, then you can't bet on any of those fantasies. Um, and you have to be serious about a wartime-like mobilisation to change everything now, basically, as soon as we possibly can. It's an emergency response. It's an emergency mobilization. And that emergency response, as I say, would transform our civilization. We would need to phase out um, some uh, industries. We would need to completely alter our model of transport. We would need to eliminate most flying. We'd need to be not just thinking, oh, well, it'll be fine, we can all have electric cars. No, a full fleet of electric cars just replacing our current petrol car fleet. Um, there's absolutely no way you could get to net zero carbon by 2025. Absolutely nowhere near it. If you're serious about a, something like a 2025 target, you're talking a full-scale emergency societal transformation. And yeah, very, very few people have got their heads around that yet. So there are so many ways we could go, but I'm aware time is moving on. I would like to talk about the precautionary principle, but just before that, and we may have to do that another time, I was out canvassing general election six weeks in the Midlands. So I went to Telford, I went to Crewe and Nantwich. I didn't have a single conversation on the doorstep that touched on any of this. If we were going to do this, if let's say you and I were jettisoned into number 10 tomorrow and we had the levers of power, 
how would we bring the population with us? Yeah. Because there isn't a war. It's not, you haven't got a named enemy that you can demonize in the way that war does. Yeah. You've got, we are doing things that are going to be catastrophic, but you can't see the catastrophe yet unless you happen to look at Australia. But, you know, the Australians managed to be in denial. Yeah. Um, But I think things are changing in Australia. Uh, And I think that events like that are... um, are impacting people most obviously where they are and to some extent beyond. So, you know, that's going to be one thing that happens in the next few years. People will be woken up by more and more climate shocks and climate disasters. Uh, and those but, tragedies but the, will... the alt-right of my family is telling us that the fires in Australia were, were arson. And they were caused by the Green Party on Australia not letting the Australian government clear the bush. I mean, it's it's fantasy and it's... Wrong, yeah. But they have a narrative that keeps sure, them from... Sure, but that kind of shit and lies um, has less and less uh, traction um, as time goes by. And those people come to look more and more stupid and obscene and, and dangerous. And I think some people have seen through the Australian government in that context. But look, you're right. It's not going to be at all easier. We need the government and the media to tell the truth. That's the first demand of extinction rebellion. Um, We need to help in that process. Uh, My belief is that one way that we can do that is by ourselves getting a lot better at telling the story of our vulnerability. Um, And that's the argument I've made in this new pamphlet that I've co-authored with a couple of colleagues in XR called Rushing the Rebellion, Rushing the Emergency, where we argue that, that actually some of our emergency messaging isn't really sticking with people because until you get people to feel that kind of sense of, uh, of vulnerability, which you can do through, through, uh, through discourse and you can also do through, through actions, um, until people feel that more, it's not going to feel real to them and therefore it isn't going to come through um, in uh, doorstep conversations. So part of my hope for Extinction Rebellion in 2020 is that we tell the vulnerability story a lot more and that the kind of argument we're making in rushing the emergency, rushing the rebellion uh, gets to have more traction, which I think is starting to happen. And that could change things. But again, let's also be honest. What are the chances of this working at, at scale and at speed and so on? Well, you know, they don't look good, despite the fact that XR has had this enormous awakening effect. And it's part of a broader awakening that includes, obviously, the climate school strikes and is prompted by the, um, the terrifying weather events of the last few years. So once again... Um, we have to be courageous enough to uh, to look down. Uh, we have to be courageous enough to understand that we're we're off the cliff. We're like one of those cartoon characters that's uh, kicking their legs frantically uh, uh, in the air. Um, and there's going to be um, a lot of pain and damage uh, in the years ahead. Um, and it it seems very unlikely that uh, that humanity is going to uh, get its act uh, together in time. So we need to have a serious um, agenda of adaptation and not just mitigation and prevention. We need to be doing deep adaptation to prepare for potential societal uh, collapse. And we need to be doing what I and my think tank Greenhouse call transformative uh, adaptation, which is trying to make the changes in society that we know we already desperately uh, need to make um, uh, that will prepare us for the harder times ahead to do so in a way which is simultaneously uh, mitigative uh, and to try thereby to create a sort of win-win-win 
So we're talking about the creation of local resilience networks. Yeah. Food resilience, water resilience, power resilience, I'm thinking transport resilience. Absolutely. We're talking about working with nature rather than against nature in, in terms of something like um, uh, flood prevention. We need, uh, we need flood prevention and flood amelioration schemes that are not um, carbon heavy, but rather are carbon um, absorptive. Uh, uh, and that um, do not create a sort of uh, brittle um, system which will be um, overwhelmed uh, by the rising tide of, uh, of disasters um, to, that tragically um, are going to be coming. We need to be thinking, I believe now, in the kind of way that Joseph Tainter describes in his great book, uh, The Collapse of Complex Societies and his more recent work, where the implication I draw from, from that work is that the only way that in this madly over complex society where in order to give ourselves enormous power, we've created this vast collateral damage of habitat destruction and the time bomb of, uh, of uh, dangerous climate change. The only way we're going to get through this now is by affecting a radical simplification. And in fact, that simplification is going to be imposed upon us if we don't do it voluntarily. So again, this civilization is finished. The question is, is it going to be finished by by an enraged uh, nature um, destroying us? Um, or is it going to be uh, finished by us getting in just ahead of that destruction? Um, a, a fascinating historical example which Tainter discusses here um, is the latter stages of the Roman Empire. So notoriously, of course, the Roman Empire uh, declined uh, and, and fell, or at least the Western uh, Roman Empire uh, did. Uh, what's less discussed is that the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine uh, Empire, um, survived. Now, how did it uh, survive? Well, fascinatingly, the way it survived when it was under most pressure um, in um, the 8th century and around that period, uh, pressure from all sides, but especially from um, Arab um, forces, um, it survived by radically simplifying. It, su it survived by decomplexifying. It survived by radically relocalizing. Uh, that means things like that um, rather than having a huge professional army, um, the army devolved into local peasant militias that defended their own lands. Uh, yeah, and most of the monetary economy was dropped. Um, uh, the economy no longer largely worked on the basis of, uh, of money, but was uh, far more based in, in subsistence. And, uh, uh, and again, um, localization. Now, that is, I believe, an inspiring precedent. Um, if we were able to find a way of radically decomplexifying our society, creating that kind of uh, local um, resilience uh, in the years uh, to come, uh, not too many years, um, then we may be able to survive this, uh, the coming storms uh, without collapsing. And as I say, it's not a question of um, either you do that or you carry on, you know, having um, um, whatever, you know, holidays on the Great Barrier Reef and uh, businesses usual with a bit of uh, greenwash. No, uh, if we try to go down the route of continuing our society, even of reforming our society, it will collapse. So either we do something like this kind of radical simplification, um, or we're just heading straight for the buffers. Sounds like, are you familiar with Murray Bookchin's work and the mm -hmm. municipal libertarianism that the Kurds are taking on board? That sounds like yes, they are already heading for where 
you, but the Kurds started from a very different place. Yes, I think that the, there's there's lots to be learnt uh, right now, as you say, from the Rojava um, uh, example. There are uh, real current examples and historical precedents that we can learn from if we're willing. We have to we have to <laughs> we have to learn uh, quickly, uh, and whatever we do in this direction will mean that the uh, uh, the impact will likely to will be likely to be a softer landing. Okay, so we're going to have to wrap up shortly. At Accidental Gods, our thesis is that if we can move to a place of conscious evolution, of spiritual evolution, where we effectively reach a phase shift from the current system to, a, and the point being that you cannot see where we're going. No, no problem is solved from the mindset that created it, and that when a complex system bifurcates, it either heads for chaos and extinction, or it makes a phase shift to a new an entirely new system that was basically yeah. invisible from where we started. Yeah. You talk a lot in your book about spirituality. And one of the things we were going to do today, if I'd got here in time, was to a beach that you value. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about how, in your view, spirituality weaves through an ideal set of circumstances if we were able to make the shifts that you want. Where would spirituality lie within that process? Yeah, great question. So, and I hope to be exploring this in the course I'm going to be teaching in uh, Schumacher College in May called um, A Spiritual Basis for Rebelling Against Extinction. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do come. Yes. Um, so let me start out with the point about uh, I was going to take you to this uh, beach. I think that, that there is bound to be in the future a resurgence in... Uh, devotion to and interest in place and locality for reasons that are already apparent from the, the ground that we've covered in this uh, discussion. Um, and this is going to be, by the way, uh, an especially difficult transition to effect for a lot of um, uh, right thinking, um, I mean, well-intentioned um, uh, liberal middle class people in societies like ours, who are the people who actually tend to think of themselves much more as uh, as anywheres rather than uh, somewheres, and people who feel comfortable moving around the world and so on and so forth. All of that is uh, is coming towards an end. Um, and what is going to be uh, starting um, is um, more of a sense of, uh, of rootedness and more of a sense of, of place and of love of, of place. Um, and one of the great challenges is, is let's make sure that this can happen in a way which is uh, positive and beautiful and spiritually inflected and so forth, and not in a way that is uh, atavistic and xenophobic and so forth. That is, I think, an enormous and vital challenge of our times, which I think most people, for example, in universities haven't even literally got to first base in conceptualizing uh, yet. So, yeah, I believe that it's obvious that the crisis that we're going through is among other things, um, a spiritual crisis in a broad enough sense of that term. And that um, we are, we will be living in the future if we um, do not collapse completely uh, in a way that involves some kind of better, broadly speaking, uh, spiritual attunement uh, to the land, uh, to each other, uh, to life, um, to meaning. Um, there is a huge kind of gulf of, uh, of uh, a kind of lack of meaning in the lives of so many people uh, at present. One of the silver linings of the appalling uh, vista that we need to dare to gaze into um, is that it is liable to 
to provide uh, a possibility for regaining uh, a, a sense of meaning as we struggle together to survive and flourish and are forced to uh, rebuild a community and to come out of these these sad, tiny little uh, monads that we've uh, locked ourselves into in our individualistic culture and in our separate houses and so on uh, and so forth. And I think you can see tiny signs of this kind of uh, spiritual resurgence in such things as the extraordinary success of the film uh, Avatar um, a decade ago, on some measures the most successful film uh, of all time. And you look at what that film was about and the and the and the message of it and the the spiritual journey that it took the uh, the viewer vicariously on. And you have to get some kind of uh, uh, hope and sense of fortitude um, from that. Um, so yeah, I think that the crisis that is facing us, it's obviously political, it's obviously um, uh, economic, it's, uh, it's a number of things, but it's pretty obviously uh, uh, spiritual um, as well. Uh, and let's be willing to, uh, to, to grasp that nettle and to, to seize the enormous opportunity that it offers for deepening uh, our lives, for re-injecting meaning into them, for dealing with uh, a widespread sense of anime, for, for confronting the, the terrible mental ill health crisis that uh, is gripping uh, our society and that, of course, will get a lot worse in years to come as more people wake up in shock and horror to what we've done to ourselves and to the planet. But again, you know, that crisis could be the the making of us. Um, it could be um, a psycho-spiritual um, emergency, the basis for a psycho-spiritual journey that leads us to actually reconnect again with each other and what actually matters to us uh, uh, with nature, with uh, with beauty, uh, with, uh, with our children, with everything that we haven't taken... Uh, seriously enough in this kind of uh, fever dream of uh, of materialism and of uh, rushing towards the uh, towards the cliff edge brilliant thank you we're going to have to stop in a second but i wonder is there one thing that you if the people listening if they were just going to do one thing after listening to this go out of the door and do it what one thing would you recommend that they do to begin with hmm. to make a step on the way pause <laughs> and uh, and reflect don't don't rush around like a headless chicken. Don't don't uh, find some excuse for going into denial again. Dare to stop and think about all this for a bit. Uh, and if you haven't already done so, um, it will probably change your whole life. Wonderful. Thank you, Rupert. And I hope to have the second half of this conversation at a later date. Let's do that. Thank you very much indeed. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Rupert for the generosity of his time and the depth of his intellect. I really do hope that we have a chance to have another interview with him sometime soon because there is so much else that we could have explored. But in the meantime, as ever, thanks to Caro C for the music at the head and foot of the podcast and for the sound production. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for designing the website and for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods. And thanks... As always, to you for listening. If you like what you hear, give us five stars and a review on the podcast app of your choice. It helps to get us known out in the world of Google. But more than that, share us with your friends, with your family, with your neighbours, with your colleagues, with anyone and everyone that you think wants to see the world as a more equitable and sustainable place. If you want to know more or to join the membership programme, we're at accidentalgods.life on the net 
and the same on various bits of social media. And that's it until next week. Thank you and goodbye.